Good morning, everyone. My name is Angel. I'm going to read the scripture for today's sermon. It's from the book of John, chapter 4, verses 1 to 42. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Women, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. 
Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Thanks, Angel. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here with you today. As has been mentioned already today, this year we've been going through the story of the Bible together as a church. And right now in our journey through the Bible, we're taking a few weeks to look at the life of Jesus and see what God has to teach us uh, by looking at the way that Jesus lived and the things that he taught. And today we're going to be looking at his encounter with this woman at the well in John chapter 4. And we're going to see that only Jesus can satisfy the deepest desires of our hearts. Only Jesus can satisfy the deepest desires of our hearts. We're going to spend most of our time today just looking at the story and sort of unpacking what's there. Then we'll take some time to look at one key truth and one takeaway. Cool? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us and that we can know you. God, what a blessing that is. Be with us as we look at your word today. Speak to us, help us to see you more clearly, to trust you more deeply, and to love you more truly. In Jesus' name, amen. So, like I said, we're going to spend most of our time today looking at the story, unpacking it, seeing what it has to teach us. Uh, Last week, if you were here, we looked at Jesus becoming human, God becoming human in Jesus, what we call the incarnation. Today, we're skipping ahead a bit in the story. And since that introduction, Jesus had sort of burst onto the scene of ministry in Israel. So John the Baptist was one of the most popular preachers of their day. He publicly announced Jesus is the son of God. So he's got this ringing ministry endorsement from one of the top guys out there in his day. Jesus has started doing miracles. People have started following him. And now he has caught the attention of the Jewish religious leaders, which we know because in chapter three of John, right before this, one of the top religious leaders in Israel comes to Jesus, has a secret meeting with him at night because he wants to learn more about what Jesus is teaching. And so Jesus has burst onto the ministry scene. People are starting to hear about who he is. And and he's actually now at the point where we pick up the story today, starting to attract the wrong kind of attention. See, John starts chapter four by telling us that Jesus and his disciples were having a fruitful ministry in Judea. Can we move ahead one slide? So down here in this sort of teal blue area, that's where Jesus and his disciples have been ministering. That also happens to be the headquarters of the Jewish religious leaders. And Jesus is starting to expand his ministry, get more popular, and the Jewish religious leaders are feeling really insecure about this new guy coming on the scene. And they're on the verge of doing something to disrupt his ministry. So rather than get into a fight, Jesus and his disciples decide they're going to go 
to their home, home area, Galilee, which is up in that sort of pinkish, orangish area up top. And you can see there's a little purple area in the middle called Samaria. You all see that? So to get from southern Israel to northern Israel, you had to go through this area of Samaria, like how to get from Hong Kong Island to new territories, you have to go through Kowloon. But they couldn't just ride the MTR straight through. You had to walk it because they didn't have trains or cars or buses back then. And the, the most good Jewish people probably wished there was a way to just fly right through that area on an MTR or a bus or a car because the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along at all. The Samaritans were a group of people who had started out Jewish, but then intermarried with non-Jewish people around them. So now they were sort of this crossbreed. And the good Jewish people saw them as sellouts who had abandoned God and abandoned God's people. They were sort of the scum of the earth in the eyes of most good Jews. Actually, some Jews hated the Samaritans so much. You can see this red line to the left that goes straight through the purple area. That's the path that Jesus and his disciples took. But you can see to the right, there's another red path that goes out to the right. And then it's a little hard to see, but there's actually a green line that loops off of that. So the path that Jesus and his disciples took would have taken three days to walk. But some Jews added one or two days extra to their journey to walk around the purple area, go through Gentile or completely non-Jewish lands, just because they hated the Samaritans so much. They were like, I would rather do like 50 kilometers extra of walking in the hot sun just to avoid these people. Like that's how intense the hatred and tension was between these people. But Jesus and his disciples, they take the direct route, the red line up on the left, and they stop at this town called Sikar, which is, do you see on the left, there's a little text box, the bottom text box. It has an arrow pointing to a town right at the bottom of the purple area. That's, that's where they stopped in today's passage. And they come to this town. Jesus is hungry and he's tired. His disciples go into town to get him some food to eat. And it leaves him at this well outside the city all by himself. So it's the middle of the day in a hot, dry land. Jesus has been out walking all day. And as Jesus sits by the well, a woman from the city comes to get water, which would have been a weird thing to see. Not, not someone coming to the well to get water. When you don't have running water in your house, that's how you get water. You go to the well, you dip a pitcher in there and fill it up with water. The thing that would have been weird is two things. First, you don't go to collect water in the middle of the day. This is hard work. The water pitcher is heavy. It's a hot area. You come either when the first sun first rises in the morning or right before the sun sets at night so that it's cooler, it's not as sweaty and exhausting. The second thing that was weird about this is that you don't go get water from the well alone. Just like trips to the bathroom today, going to the well was something women did in groups back then. And it's something that they would go in groups for the social side of it. They can chat with each other as they walk. It's about a one mile walk from the town to the well in this case. So you can chat with one another. It's also something that's a safety issue. Right? If you come out to the well and there's just a random man sitting there like this woman finds today, if he decides to attack you and you're all alone, what are you going to do? If you have a group of women with you, then they can protect you. You can protect one another. You can fight him off. 
So the fact that this woman comes by herself to get water from the well in the middle of the day tells us something is wrong. She's avoiding people. She's doing extra hot work in the most dangerous way possible, all for the sake of avoiding people. And she comes out to the well, and as she gets there, Jesus says to her, give me a drink. Which he's obviously thirsty from a long day walking in the hot sun. He has no way of getting himself water from this well. It's, it's very deep, like 100 plus feet deep. So there's no way that he could just scoop in his hand and get it. He needed some type of a, a pitcher or water jar to get it, which she now has. But the woman, as Jesus asks her this question, realizes something weird is going on. Because one, in this society, Jewish people do not talk to Samaritans. For a Jewish person to talk to a Samaritan, something's got to be wrong. Number two, in this society, men do not talk to women unless it can't be avoided. And then number three, in this society, Jewish people will not share a dish with a Samaritan person. They believe that eating or drinking off the same piece of uh, plateware or cup as a Samaritan person is going to make them ceremonially unclean, meaning they can't worship God. And the only way for this woman to give Jesus water is for him to have it out of her water jar. So him asking this question shows this woman that this guy probably isn't a very good Jew, right? He's, he's violating all of the things that you would expect a good Jewish man to do by asking me for water. And it startles her. It startles her so much that she doesn't even answer the question. She just says, how is it that you, a Jew, are asking for water from me, a Samaritan? And Jesus is totally unfazed by her question. He tells her, look, if you knew who you were talking to, you would have actually asked me and I would have given you living water, which leaves the woman totally confused as any of us probably would have been in her place. Like, what are you talking about living water? How are you going to get this living water? You don't even have a jar to get normal water. Who do you think you are to be able to offer this to me? And she expresses all of this doubt and all of this cynicism in her response to Jesus. But Jesus, he clarifies, I have a different type of water to give to you. It doesn't come from the well. It springs up from inside you and it leads to eternal life so that if you have this water, you are never going to be thirsty again. Sounds like a pretty sweet offer, right? And the woman, still thinking that Jesus is referring to to literal, physical water, she says, give me this water so I don't have to be thirsty or come here to get water anymore. Now notice, as soon as she hears this offer from Jesus, what's the first thing that comes into her mind? Great, I don't have to come to the well anymore. Which is good news because that's hard work. We like, we like avoiding hard work if we can. But even more, it's good news because it lets her avoid all of the people around her. All of the people who judge her and look at her with scorn in their eyes. If she had a source of water inside her so she didn't get thirsty, it would give her the freedom to hide forever from the shame she felt. To hide forever from the people who look down on her, who think less of her. And so she sees this offer as fantastic news. And she says, give it to me. And Jesus knows the exact response to tell her. He says, go, get your husband, and come here. And this comment cuts straight to her heart. Why? Because she, like all of us, has been seeking living water her entire life. 
but she's been seeking it from the wrong place. And with this one comment, Jesus just exposed the primary false source of living water that she's been going back to again and again and again. See, Jesus has an assumption that he brings to this conversation and his assumption, it's true of this woman. It's also true of all of us. And the assumption is that every human being craves living water. And I realize we haven't actually defined living water yet. So this might be a good time to do that. Living water is abundant, satisfying life. We can put the definition up on the screen in case you want to note that down. Living water is abundant, satisfying life. In ancient Israel, this term living water, it referred to water that came from like a stream or a river or running water. And in a world where you didn't have just tap water that you could turn on like we do, this was the freshest, most satisfying source of water possible. If you ever walked by a swamp, you know how gross and nasty stagnant water can be. You don't want to drink that. But river water or stream water, it's fresh. It's, it's not built up with all that nastiness that the swamp gets. It's always fresh. It always satisfies. And Jesus is using this physical reality of this flowing, living water as a picture of the deepest desire of this woman's soul and every soul. Jesus isn't offering her a physical beverage. He's offering her lasting, abundant, glorious life. Isn't that something you want? Of course you do. We all want it. We're human. It's part of, the Bible tells us that God has put this desire in our hearts for eternity. Something that like nothing in this world can satisfy. But Jesus right here offers it to this woman. And she says she wants it, but she still thinks he's talking about something physical. She's deeply, deeply ashamed of how her life has gone. At this point, there are really two ingredients she believes that she needs in order to have abundant, glorious, lasting life. The first is to hide from the people around her who look down on her. And hey, if I can have water that springs up from inside me so I don't have to come to the well anymore, then I can do that. And the second ingredient that she believes she needs for the good life is a man to love her. And Jesus, with his question, exposes that second thing that she believes she needs for good life. Because that desire for romantic love has been the deepest source of shame in her life over the years. She's gone back to this well of romantic love over and over and over again, hoping that each time, maybe it will satisfy me. Maybe this time, the well of romantic love can give me that living water, that true life, and time and time again, it has failed her. We don't know how her marriage has ended, but we know that each one did end. She kept going back to this well of romantic love. She kept believing that if I can just do it right this time, if I, if I can fix my mistakes that I made last time, this time, I'll be able to find abundant, true, lasting life in this relationship with this next man. We're going to see in just a minute, she has had five husbands over the years. Regardless of how the marriages end, when you've been through five marriages, especially in a more traditional culture like that one, you start to get a bit of a reputation. Maybe the marriages all ended through divorce, which in that day would have been initiated by the man. Think about the reputation she would have around town as the woman who had not one, but five different men divorce her. She, she's the person who can't keep a man satisfied. 
Or maybe the marriage is ended because the husband died. You know, spouses die sometimes, but if you have five spouses die, especially in a culture like this, you're going to get a reputation as being a little bit kind of cursed, right? Like you don't want to marry this girl because then you're going to end up dead. And maybe there's some combo of the two. Maybe some were divorces, some were death. But either way, every single time, she kept going back to the same well, believing that the romantic love will give me the abundant, true, glorious life I've always wanted if I can just find the right man and make it last this time. And in the words of Jeremiah 2.13, this well of romantic love, it was a broken well that could never hold water. And Jesus wants her to see that. I mean, we, we see that she's now reached the point, she's so desperate to find some satisfaction from this well of romantic love, but she can't find a guy who's willing to marry her. So now she's living with a guy she's not married to, which was a huge no-no in that culture. She's using her body and her sex to try to entice this guy into loving her and committing to her because she's so desperate to find this satisfaction from romantic love. And Jesus knows that in order for her to get true living water, true life that satisfies, she needs to stop trying to find it from these wrong places. And so he makes a comment that draws her attention to her well of choice, men. I wonder if you or I were in this conversation with Jesus, what is it he would have said to us to cut straight to our hearts and expose all the wrong places that we're searching for life. Where do you try to find living water that will satisfy your soul? And if it's anything other than Jesus, how is that working for you? Do you try to find living water in sex? You know, if you try to find it in sex, you will never have enough. Seeking the great life through sex leads to addiction. It leads to infidelity. It destroys families and destroys lives. And don't get me wrong, sex, when used rightly, is a great gift from God, but it is a terrible, terrible source of life. Students, when I was your age, I sought living water through good grades. Did anyone else do that? Maybe I'm the only one. Maybe I'm a weirdo. That's okay. But let me tell you, from experience, I had almost the best grades you could possibly have. And after living through that experience, I can tell you, good grades are a great thing to have, but they are a terrible, terrible source of abundant and true life. Because even when you get those straight A's, even if it's straight A pluses, you know what happens? You have to do it again next term, or else it means nothing. You can never stop, you can never relax, you can never rest, you can never enjoy it because you always have to keep proving yourself. You always have to do more. The, the satisfaction doesn't last. I was convinced, convicted this week that there's another place I seek to find true life today. I bet it's one that probably several, several of us look for true life in our lives. And here's what it is. I seek to find true life in doing the right thing, being kind to others, and being able to look at myself in the mirror at the end of the day and, and feel like I'm a good person. Anyone else relate to that? A few of us, yeah? I feel like if I can look at myself in the mirror at the end of the day and feel like I'm a good person, that will give me the good life. And again, doing the right thing, being kind to others, being a good person, all great things, all terrible sources of life. 
Because no matter how good you are that day, you get to the end of the day, you look at yourself in the mirror, and you're reminded of all the ways that you failed, all the ways you could have been kind to the people around you, and you didn't because you were too lazy or too tired or too whatever. And even if you've been perfectly kind to every single person you interacted with that day, you flip on the news and you're like, man, I could be doing so much more for the people in Afghanistan right now. There's there's never enough that you can do to feel like you've done enough that you can look at yourself in the mirror and say, I am a good person and therefore I have achieved abundant, true, good life for myself. If you're seeking true living water, abundant, glorious life through your own efforts, through your own accomplishments, your own achievements, you can never do enough to get it. And Jesus wants to give you true, abundant life. But before you're ready to receive it, he needs to show you all the places you're looking for life right now. That he needs to show you they can't satisfy. They haven't satisfied. They, they'll continue to not satisfy moving forward. And that's why he asks this woman, go get your husband. And the woman says, I have no husband. Which is really, really telling the way that she responds to this comment. Because up until this point in the conversation, every time this woman has opened her mouth to speak, she's a little chatty Cathy. She averages 32 words every time she opens her mouth to speak. And then Jesus tells her, go get your husband. And how long is her response? Four words. I have no husband. She's saying the subject is clearly out of bounds. Quit talking about it. If that's where you want this conversation to go, it's over. And Jesus, oh, he's so incredible. He calls out her lie by celebrating her honesty. Only Jesus can do this, right? Like, look at what he says. He doesn't shame her. He doesn't say, liar. I know you've been married to basically every guy in this town. No, he's like, look, you're right. Because the five guys you were married to before aren't your husband anymore. The one you're with now also isn't your husband. You're telling the truth. He lovingly draws her out. He applauds her honesty by telling her three separate times you have spoken the truth, all the while blatantly calling out her lie. I wish I had that type of interpersonal communication skills, right? Don't you? The woman, she still doesn't want to talk about it. So she changes the subject by asking a theology question. Do you ever find that sometimes it's just way easier to discuss really deep theological questions that have absolutely nothing to do with your life? than to discuss the simplest matters that go straight to your heart. That's what she's doing. She says, you know, oh, the, so I can see you're a prophet. You know some stuff about me that you couldn't have known unless God had shown it to you. So there's this theological debate between Jews and Samaritans about where to worship God. Who's right? And Jesus isn't so easily distracted. He pulls her attention back. He says, it's not about where we worship God. It's about how we worship God. He tells her the hour is coming. In the book of John, anytime you see Jesus refer to the hour, he's always referring to the cross. So he's telling her, I'm going to do something on the cross and it's going to totally change things. And because of what I'm doing on the cross, where we worship God is going to become irrelevant, which is great news for people living in Hong Kong, right? But in light of the cross, the important thing isn't where you worship God, it's how you worship God. And he says, the way that we are to worship God is in spirit and in truth. Which again, really interesting in this point in this conversation, because what's the woman trying to do? She's trying to avoid and hide and cover up the truth. 
But Jesus says true worship is in spirit and in truth. And the woman, she sees that she's not getting anywhere. So she says, well, there's this guy coming. He's called the Messiah. When he comes, he'll tell us all this stuff and then we can know for sure. And Jesus tells her a stunning statement. Now, I love the ESV version of the Bible. That's what I read each day. That's what I preach from. In this verse, the ESV doesn't have the best possible translation. It's okay. It says, we can put it up on the screen for comparison. It says in verse 26, I who speak to you am he, which is okay, but loses a lot of the nuance. The New Living Translation on this verse, so much better. It says, I am the Messiah with I am in all caps. Jesus isn't just saying, I'm the guy you're talking about. He's referring back to the Old Testament. I am in the Old Testament is God's name. Jesus is taking God's name. He's applying it to himself and telling this woman, not just I'm the guy you're talking about, but I am God. Normally, if you're in a conversation with someone and they call themselves the Lord of the universe, you think this person is crazy, right? The crazy thing about this conversation is that the woman believes him. She has seen something distinct and unique and different about Jesus that when he speaks these words, she realizes, oh wow, it's true. Why? Why does she realize that this is true? Well, first, just continue the story a little bit and then we'll come back. The disciples arrive. They're a little bit confused why Jesus is talking to a woman. And as the disciples get back, she runs into town to tell everyone come meet a man who told me everything I've ever done. Can this be the Messiah? Look at this transformation in her. She goes from being this person who's ashamed, who comes out to the well in the middle of the day so that she doesn't have to face what's happened in her past, to being the person who runs around town shouting out, this guy told me everything I ever did. Come meet him. She believes that he is who he says he is, and she's totally transformed. She runs into the town telling everyone to come out and meet this guy. What happened inside her? Why does she believe Jesus is telling the truth? Why is she so excited to go and share about her shameful past with the town? It's because she had experienced this living water inside of her. Through Jesus' love, she experienced the power of grace, She found love and acceptance and belonging that she had been craving for her entire life. Jesus didn't shame her for her sexual history or for lying to him about it. He didn't pull back his offer of living water as soon as as he found out who she really is. No, he revealed that he knew the deepest, darkest, most secret parts of her that she didn't want anyone else to see. And he was still willing to show her love and offer her living water. He was probably the first person she had ever spoken to in her life who offered her this type of love and acceptance with no strings attached. He showed her that all the other places she'd been looking for life can never satisfy, but he can. And she realized in that moment that she had been seeking life in all the wrong places. Freedom didn't come from hiding. Freedom didn't come from pretending that everything was okay when it wasn't. It didn't come from trying to pretend the mistakes of her past had never happened. No, it it came from being fully known at her very, very worst, and yet still loved despite everything she had ever done wrong. And John tells us as the story closes that many people from the town 
heard what she said, came out and believed in Jesus because of what she told them. And so I want to look at one key truth from this passage and one takeaway for our lives based on this passage. The key truth is that only Jesus can satisfy the deepest desires of your heart. As we've already said, all of our hearts crave living water. All of us want abundant, glorious life. And the default mode of the human heart, the way that we're all born and hardwired from the beginning is to believe that we can and should be capable of producing our own living water through our efforts. And it's a lie. We can't do it through our efforts. Only Jesus can satisfy. And I realize there are like seven, more than seven billion people on the world. We're quite, ver- have a lot of variety within the human race. But I think if you look at the roots of the places we look for life, we could probably boil it down to like four things that are almost universal as the places we look other than Jesus for life. And the Bible uses the word idol to refer to anything or any place other than God that we look for true abundant life. So I'm gonna refer to these things as idols you can see on the left column here. And here are the four things we look to, power, approval, comfort, and control. And I think all of us desire all of these things on some level, but for each of us, there's gonna be like one or two of these things that on a scale of one to 10, will probably be like we want it on a three or four. And there's gonna be one or two that we desire at like a seven to a nine level. Does that make sense? And the things that are like our sevens to nines are gonna be the things that shape the way we view the world, that are the lens through which we make decisions. And so with people who want power, they want success, they wanna win, they wanna influence people. And in order to get those things, they're willing to sacrifice relationships, they're willing to take on extra responsibility, and their greatest fear is humiliation or failure. People who want approval, they want affirmation and love and relationships. And in order to get those things, they will sacrifice their independence. They will sacrifice their integrity. They'll tell you all the things they think you want to hear instead of the truth that really needs to be spoken. And their greatest fear is rejection or not being valued. People who want comfort, they want privacy. They want lack of stress. They want freedom. And in order to get these things, they're willing to sacrifice productivity. They're willing to let go of responsibilities that are supposed to be theirs. And their greatest fear is stress and demands and change. And then finally, control. People who desire control, they want self-discipline. They want security. They want standards. They're willing to be lonely in order to get these things. They're willing to sacrifice the good of others in order to get these things. And their worst fear is uncertainty or being out of control. And you can think of these four things, power, approval, comfort, and control, as like a root system operating underneath the surface of our lives. And all the other things we typically think of as the places where we seek true abundant life other than Jesus are actually the trees and fruits that grow out of them. If we go forward one side, we can see. So the the root system is power, comfort, control, approval. And then things like grades or success or money or sex or fill in the blank are the visible things that grow out of these. So someone who seeks true, abundant life, living water through money, never seeks money just for money's sake. They seek money because they believe through money, I can get one of these four things under the surface. Maybe they believe that if I have enough money, I can get other people to do what I want them to do. They use money as a pathway to power. Maybe they believe that if I have money, I can buy all the best toys so I can be comfortable. And money is a path to comfort. 
Maybe they feel like if I have enough money, I can have protection and security from anything that goes wrong in the world, and therefore money is a path to control. Or maybe they just want to use their money to buy friends. Money is a path to approval. Or another classic thing people use on a surface level to seek abundant life, sex. Again, no one seeks sex just for sex's sake. It's always a tool to unlock one of these other things. For the woman in the passage today, sex is a key to unlock approval. She thinks, if I just sleep with this guy enough times for long enough, if I can satisfy him enough, he'll finally decide that he loves me. He'll finally decide to marry me. How many people in today's world use sex as a key to unlock approval? Other people use sex as a path to power. They consider the people they sleep with as conquests. They use sex as a tool to prove that they can get others to do what they want and they can get their way. For others, it's about comfort. It feels good when you have sex and life is all about feeling good. But these things on the surface, they're never ends in and of themselves. They're always pathways to the deeper places that we seek to tap our true abundant lives. So power, control, comfort, approval, they're what we could call root idols or deep idols because they're operating under the surface, controlling everything else we do, but from a perspective where we can't actually see them. We don't realize it unless we stop to notice it. And the thing they all have in common is that all of them tell you the lie that you control your own access to living water. All of them tell you if you can pay the right price, you can unlock the things you really seek in life. Your own heart and its desires promise that they can be the keys to unlocking living water for you, but it's all a lie. As Jesus shows the woman at the well, our hearts and our efforts lack the power to access living water on our own. Because the world is broken, we are broken, whatever path we choose to access living water through our own efforts leads us to pay too high a price and it can never give us the things we ultimately desire. And that's because God has hardwired us with a desire for perfection and eternity and nothing in this world can give us the eternity and perfection that we desire. You can spend your entire life chasing these idols and you can lose them in a day. You can work and work and work and, and store up all your money in the bank account and have millions and millions of dollars and the stock market can crash and you can lose it all overnight. Or the stock market can do better than ever, but the government can decide we don't like the country you're from, we're gonna freeze your accounts and no matter how much you have in them, you can't access them. Money is not a true source of security and safety. No matter what you sacrifice for love, if the person that you're in a relationship decides with, the person you're in a relationship with decides the relationship is over, there's nothing you can do from walk, stopping them from walking out the door. Which is a terrifying thought to think about, right? If they decide it's over, you cannot stop them from walking out that door. And even if you have the most perfect marriage ever, someday it's going to end in death. Romance approval, security, comfort, control. Nothing in this world can give them to us in the way that our hearts desire, in the way that we crave. Nothing in this world can give us that living water that we want so badly. But Jesus can. He promises us eternal life. This perfection and eternity that we crave, they're available through him. He can offer them because he came from heaven to purchase access to heaven for us. And unlike all the pleasures we seek through our own effort, the life Jesus offers us is secure. 
He purchased it and paid for it through his death on the cross. And the resurrection is a big stamp that just says paid in full across the whole purchase document. For those who trust in him, Jesus gives us living water. And our access to that living water starts not just when we die, but today, which brings us to our key takeaway. Stop seeking living water in yourself and find it in Jesus because only he can satisfy. We see it in the woman in today's passage. She's been looking to men for something that she can only find in Jesus. She's been looking for a place of perfect love, full vulnerability, deep intimacy, and complete acceptance. And for the first time ever in her life, Jesus gives her a place where she can be completely vulnerable and still completely accepted and loved. Whatever it is you're seeking in life, Jesus can give it in a way that nothing in this world can. You want power and success? I have bad news for you. Anything you accomplish in this world, it's going to die and fade away one day. You start the best company in the world and it expands and becomes the biggest company in the world, someday that company will go bankrupt and will not exist anymore. You build the greatest building ever, someday they're going to tear it down to put something newer and shinier in its place. But Jesus promises that for those who find true life in him, the things we do in this world will carry over and impact eternity. Jesus gives us access to a level of success that's not possible in this world. You want approval? Bad news for you. This world is full of broken and sinful people who will use you and hurt you. But guess what? Jesus makes you a beloved child of God, secure in your father's love that can never be taken away. You want comfort? I have bad news for you. All the toys and cool gadgets that you can buy, they're going to break someday. Most of them will be outdated within two years. And even if you have all the best toys, you keep them all up to date, as you get older, your body is just going to start hurting. So that no matter how great the gadgets and toys you have to keep you comfortable, you're still going to be in pain and uncomfortable. But Jesus offers an eternity of bliss with God in heaven that never rests, it never fades away, it never grows old. You want control? I think if COVID has taught us nothing else, it's that any, any control we think we have in life is an illusion. We're totally out of control, but Jesus, he's the one who's in control of the whole universe and he promises to use that control for the good of those who trust him and love him. What safer place is there to be? Church, the fact is we all want true life. We all want the living water that only Jesus gives. And our greatest problem isn't that we want living water, it's that we look for it in all the wrong places. We look for it in our efforts, our accomplishments. And through his conversation with this woman at the well, Jesus shows us nothing we do can ever bring that lasting satisfaction we desire. Anywhere other than him that we look for living water, it's going to come up dry. But anyone who drinks from the water that Jesus offers will never thirst again. It's not my promise, it's his. So the invitation today is to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I have no water, but I need it. I'm thirsty for the living water that only you provide. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. Thank you that you understand the deepest desires of our hearts and that you are the true, the only true source of finding those desires fulfilled. Thank you that you offer us living water, God. Thank you that in you we can find this true vulnerability and 
being known, but also being loved and accepted that we've desired and craved our whole lives, God. Forgive us for the times that we've sought this living water through our efforts and our accomplishments and teach us to trust in you and rest in you and find living water in you each day. In Jesus' name, amen.